turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2. All right, well, here we are. It is Thanksgiving week, okay? There's a lot of anticipation coming. Some, really, it's a great American holiday. It's got its origins all the way back to 1621 when the first pilgrims had this harvest feast after uh, actually having a harvest and somehow making it through the brutal winter. Now, uh, it's interesting, we don't really talk a lot about the origins of Thanksgiving, okay? Uh, even at school, we're, we're kind of like, well, we don't really talk about why they're here and what happened, etc. cetera. Uh, one fourth grader trying to deal with all the political correctness was asked to give a report as to the origins of the Thanksgiving holiday. And so he wrote, well, the pilgrims came here seeking freedom from you-know-what, And when they landed, they give thanks to you-know-who, and because of them, we can worship each Sunday you-know-where, okay? And so we're kind of wrestling with this Thanksgiving, but I want to take you back. 1620 in September, uh, we have a group of people that leave southwestern England uh, from a place called Plymouth, and they make their way. It's a terrible journey. I mean, it started off nice and fine, but a lot of them got sick. They ran into a lot of difficult weather. When they finally do land, and they were way off course when they do land, uh, they went through a brutal winter. Um, They had inadequate shelter. They didn't have enough food. Most of them were sick, and many of them died in a rather horrific fashion. When they were somehow able to make it through the summer, and they actually had a harvest They had in 1621, we're not exactly sure when, September, October, November, they have what we would now call their first Thanksgiving. And it was kind of a feast, a harvest feast. The 50 that remained of the 100 that actually did land here, of those colonists, and they invited 90 Indians, they had this time of Thanksgiving. It had been real tough. I mean, they'd lost about half of the people that they came with, loved ones, folks that they sailed with. And they buried him. And yet they were still giving thanks. And they were praising God. And it's really interesting. When we uh, think about the pilgrims, sometimes we almost kind of think of them like, like superheroes with fun, funny hats, you know? And like they were on another plane, ultra spiritual, had it all together. And, and, and indeed, there were things that, about the pilgrims that were somewhat heroic, okay? Um, a Wheaton College professor by the name of Robert Tracy McKenzie He actually explored some of the heroism of some of these early American pilgrims. And he writes, you know, there's much to admire about the company of plain Englishmen who disembarked from the Mayflower almost four centuries ago. They were men and women who exhibited enormous courage in the face of unspeakable hardship and loss. They loved their children. They loved the body of Christ. And they abandoned everything that was familiar to them to serve both. And he goes on to write, they have given us an invaluable Christian example of belief, action, and endurance. But I want you to know something about these that we can learn so much from, these early pilgrims. They were very ordinary. And they had some pretty serious issues. Like, for instance, he goes on to write, but human frailty is a part of the pilgrim story as well. They argued among themselves. They were frequently duped, both by strangers and purported friends. They were ethnocentric. That kind of has the idea that you evaluate people based on an attitude that your group is superior. They struggled with that. They also, they were sometimes self-righteous. 
They struggled with their finances. They were frightened by wolves. And they hadn't even read Little Red Riding Hood, but they were still frightened by those wolves. Can you relate to people like this? Does this kind of sound like maybe us? Um, They got lost in the woods. A key leader of theirs actually got caught in an Indian deer trap and was suspended upside down for a period of time. I mean, couldn't you see that? I could see something like that happening to me. Like, oh, you know, how do do I get upside down here? I'm hanging from this tree. Uh, In years to come, they would have trouble actually keeping a pastor. Now, these flaws, you would think with the pilgrims, you know, that's kind of shocking. And we're, we're not familiar with talking about their problems and their issues, but they were very ordinary, just like you and me. And yet what's interesting is that the pilgrims, they seem to actually kind of glory in the fact that God could use them despite all their weaknesses and sinfulness. Let me give you a few quotes from some of their leaders. One of their key leaders, Robert Cushman, he wrote, quote, Our voyage hath been as full of crosses as ourselves have been of crookedness, but God can do much. Or another leader, Edward Winslow, said, How few weak and raw were we at our first beginning, and yet God preserved us. Or William Bradford, he uh, was the second governor, the first governor died. Um, Rather a significant figure, we're probably the most familiar pilgrim. Um, He served as governor five times, so he covered about 30 years, starting from like 621 to 1657. And he seemed to glory in the fact that all of them, had a lot of issues and were flawed and were ordinary and had weaknesses. And he did so for this object. He says, quote, that their children may see what difficulties their fathers wrestled in going through these things in their first beginnings. And listen to this. And how God brought them along, notwithstanding all their weaknesses and infirmities. You know, when you look at the pilgrims, like really look at them, they were just like you and me, ordinary problems. They were scared of things, got lost, had money issues, were fooled. You know, we, uh, we look at them and they, and they see that they kind of buried like half of the people they came with. And yet they're giving thanks, even in the midst of their problems. You know, some people think like, hey, you know what? I'm going to be really grateful when my life is perfect, right? When everything works out, I got the right job. Things are cool with my friends, my family. I got the house, car. Every, when everything's perfect, well, then I'm going to be grateful. And guess what? It leads to ingratitude because guess what? We're in a fallen world. We're fallen people. And that explains why maybe some folks, they're, they're never really grateful because they're always waiting for the perfect to show up and it never happens. You know, we need to listen not only to the text of Scripture, we need to learn a few lessons from these pilgrims as well. How is it that you and I, we can actually persevere in the midst of our sufferings and even thrive in our faith, that we could actually even emerge triumphant. I mean, don't we really want to know the answer to that? How could we possibly do that? Well, let me tell you, that's why the passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, is so critically important. It tells us exactly how this can be our reality. First, let me just kind of point out, uh, you know, as believers in Christ, we have God's word to develop our lives. We looked at this rather extensively last week, but let me draw your attention back to verse 13 in chapter 2. Look at this. He says, For this reason, what reason is that? So that you would, verse 12, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. For this reason, we also constantly thank God 
that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. When you receive from us the word of God, when we gave you the gospel, the good news that Christ has come, that God entered into humanity, the Son of God came into humanity, lived a perfect life, dies as a perfect sacrifice for sins, and is resurrected to offer genuine spiritual life to all who believe. That's the gospel. When we gave you the gospel, when we gave you the Old Testament scriptures, and when we gave you the words that we were given by apostolic authority as God moved through them. You remember, like he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, chapter 1, verse 21, where he says, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. When we gave you the word of God, you accepted it not as like philosophical meanderings of some smart people, our best guesses on God. No, you recognized that the scripture, the gospel, it's really the word of God. And it does its work in you who what? Did you see it? What does your say? Verse 3. You who what? Believe. It's not enough to say, well, I just believe that the Bible is the word of God. You've got to appropriate it. You know, if you do a survey in America, most people will tell you, you ask them, what is the Bible? They'll say, well, it's, it's God's word or it's the word of God. Really? It is. They'll, they'll say that, but you've got to believe it. It's not enough to understand that, well, this book has supernatural qualities of it. And we looked at those rather extensively. If you missed that last week, go to the website and listen to that because you need to understand what this book is. This book is from God. It's not the words of men. It is literally the word of God. And it continually, that's what the Greek says here, performs, ongoing performs its work, but you've got to believe it. That means you've got to read it, but you have to heed it, obey it. You have to have a means of bringing it into your life. So like Matthew 4, 4, it says, Jesus said, Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You've got to appropriate Scripture in your life. And when we do, friend, guess what? God's Word shapes our understanding. It shapes our convictions, our beliefs, our attitudes, our values. And you and I always live out of our convictions. What you and I really believe, basically, actually, our behavior comes from that. Conduct always comes from conviction. But when God's word is shaping your life, friends, you know what? We not only can go through our struggles, and we all have them, we can even thrive. We can even be triumphant by faith. Why? Because we have the word of God. Remember this. God brings transformation through his revelation. It's why at Fellowship Bible Church, we're actually like systematically just work through books of the Bible. Why? Because we recognize that Jesus is the Lord of this church and we want his word to shape our lives. You don't want my 50 best thoughts or my favorite topics. What you want is to hear from God, from his word. Transformation comes through revelation. And friends, we can persevere through our sufferings. We can even thrive by faith. Why? Because we have God's word developing our lives. Let me show you something else. We also have... We also have God's presence strengthening our souls. Look at verse 14. He says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Now, when you read this, you sometimes may actually miss the words like brethren or you miss in Christ Jesus. But these are powerful words. You see, uh, in the New Testament, when you became a believer 
literally we understand that we've been adopted into God's family. And the imagery that is used and the words that are used are family words. You literally are part of the family of God by virtue of the blood of Christ. He's brought you into his family. Remember Jesus, at one occasion they said, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers and your sisters, they're here. And uh, Jesus said, let me tell you something. You know who my mother and my brothers are? Those who do the word of God. They hear the word of God and they obey it. Friends, when we're a part of God's family, we are brothers, sisters, and we are in Christ Jesus. The beauty of the gospel is not that we believe certain truths about Jesus, like, okay, well, I believe that he died for my sins, and so I'm forgiven. Yes, we do that, but it's far more than that. We are literally in Christ. Christ literally takes up residence within his people. The Spirit of God is actually invested into his people. So like it says, like in Ephesians 3.17, Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. Or Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives where? In me. That's what makes you a Christian, is that Christ is literally united him, yourself with him. You could never be separated from that bond. You are in Christ, and you need to know it is this relationship. It is the power of his presence that gives us strength to our souls. So when you're going through suffering and difficulty, and we all do from time to time, always remember, he is with you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. And he is going to carry you through. He is performing and accomplishing his work in your life. And what you and I find, our experience is this. We learn to grow when we learn to trust. We don't have all the answers. I mean, just looking around this auditorium, I got folks that have cancer issues, money problems, relational breakdown, uh, folks that don't have a job anymore. You got major issues, difficulties, things that with your kids, you're like, whoa, I have no idea how this is going to work out. You're not required to know. All we do is trust. And as you fix your eyes on Jesus and focus upon him, it is the power of his presence that strengthens our souls. And friends, not only can we go through suffering, we can even thrive. And we do so by faith. Um, one of the ladies in our church, I said, hey, did you get a signed chance to sign the piece of steel? You know, we have that beam that we're going to put up. It's going to be exposed. It's sitting out there in the grass and you can kind of write on it and you can put your name or Bible verses. And she goes, yeah, I signed it. And and I also wrote Philippians 4.13, she says, because I'm trusting in that. You know what Philippians 4.13 says, don't you? Right? I can do all things through him, through Christ who strengthens me. It's Jesus. And that changes everything, the power of his presence. You see, we can go through suffering. We can even thrive by faith because why? We have God's word developing our lives. We got have God's presence strengthening our souls. Let me show you something else. We also have God's people encouraging our faith. Look again at verse 14. He says, for you, brethren, isn't that a rich word? For you, brethren, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, which is the southern part of the kingdom. So you have Jerusalem, uh, you have Caesarea, Capernaum. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did. From the Jews, what you're going through is exactly what happened back in Judea. Other churches, other believers have gone through this. And he says, you know what? This this hostility that they've experienced, that you're experiencing. Well, it's nothing new. Look at verse 15, who both killed 
the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. You experience difficulty and hostility. And friends, you need to understand you're not alone. You're united with a body of believers. And their faith encourages your faith. And when Paul writes about persecution, he does so from a very unique vantage point. You know why? Because Paul used to be the persecutor. Paul, remember? He was the guy that was ripping families apart. He was the guy that was collecting coats when the first Christian dies for their faith. Remember Stephen? He's got a little, hey, let me hold on to your coat. While you throw stones, I smile and watch. Remember, he was radically changed. He was saved. He was rescued. And he who once persecuted then became the persecuted. He faced the challenges. And it shouldn't surprise us. I know that we think, well, in America, we're isolated. We kind of think that the oceans are going to keep us from suffering, suffering for our faith or facing persecution. You need to be aware that that is going to change. In fact, it already is. Paul said, you know, if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, all those who desire that will be persecuted. You're going to suffer. Jesus said, hey, if they rejected and persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If you identify with Jesus, if he truly is Lord of your life, at some point you are going to come into direct opposition with this culture. You're going to face a, a collision course because you're going in a different direction. It's kind of like, you know, like before I was a Christian, it was like I was floating in the river of the culture. And I was trying to find my identity and sense of purpose and well-being um, and what the culture would esteem. Trying to be successful. But what happened after a two-year period of time of hearing the gospel, studying, come to a realization of my own sinfulness and the just the absolute wonder and grace of Jesus. I came to a place where I believed and I trusted in him. And what happened is I was, I repented. I, and I, there was a turning and I turned 180 degrees. And I was like floating down the river, you know, like you're floating on the Guadalupe, right? And you're all having fun. You're in the tubes, right? All of a sudden now I'm going against the current. And now the tubes and the people in it, I'm, I'm going against them. They're trying to run over me and all the garbage that's floating down. Guess what? It's running into me. Why? Because I'm going in a new direction. I'm, I'm following Jesus. I'm, I've experienced salvation, but I'm, I'm growing in holiness. And, and now I'm, I'm in direct opposition to the culture in which I once was a part of. Paul says, you know what? I understand what you're going through. I'm in it. So are the churches in Judea. You are not alone. And, you know, it's interesting. The gospel, the gospel indeed draws an angry response from people because they don't want to believe that they possibly are doing something wrong or that there really is a God and that Jesus is the only way. And so the Jewish people, they actually had a rather amazing history of killing their own prophets. If you've ever read the Old Testament, you're like, are you kidding? These people, they even call on the prophets. They knew that they were from God. They were calling people, their own people, to believe, to follow the covenant, to experience God's blessing, to forsake their idols, which is a major theme. I mean, like, God does not do well with idolatry because he's the one true God. You're trying to squeeze life and meaning out of idols. You're worshiping real rocks and stones. 
God says that is totally missing the very purpose for which I've created you. And they wouldn't have it. You know, so when the prophets would come and say, listen, you were forsaking the very God who made you, who you said you'd follow. You know what they did? We don't really like your message. And if you will not be quiet, we will silence you. And so they did. I mean, even Jesus. Remember Jesus? Matthew chapter 23. There's this pretty amazing message that he passes on. He says, you know, he says to the Jewish people, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long? I mean, you, you killed the prophets and stones, those who were sent here. How long? I've wanted to have you like a hen takes her chicks under her wing, but you would not have it. You know what he said right before he made that statement? He actually rehearsed their history. He says, you know, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. He started in Genesis chapter 4. Abel, the first righteous guy to die, didn't make his brother real happy that he was truly worshiping God from the heart, and he wasn't, so he killed him. All the way to Zechariah, who is the last Hebrew prophet mentioned in the Bible in Second Chronicles chapter 24. And, you know, they, they actually, it was, they killed him. You can read it in 24. This was an example of a guy who was a man of God, recognized as a prophet, and he was killed by the people who said they were following God. And Paul says, you know what? They have a history of doing this. They not only killed Christ, they've killed the prophets. If you're facing opposition, it's because they are opposed to him. And Jewish opposition, now it wasn't like all, every single Jew. It was oftentimes a few Jews that turned over Jesus or, or killed the prophets. But what he's saying is that this opposition is great. And there are reasons for it. First of all, um, Christianity initially was viewed as a sect of Judaism. So the Romans are like, eh, what's going on here? There's a, these people, they believe that this Jesus is their Messiah. Jesus is Jewish. I don't really know. So this must be a sect of Judaism. Well, you know, Christians, the heat was starting to get turned up, and the Jews, which had the ability to kind of have their own private religion that was semi-accepted, it was a little bit curbed by the Romans, they're like, we don't want anything part of this because they're going to come down hard on us. We don't want to lose our position. We don't want to lose our political sway. And one thing that the Jews could not handle is the idea that Gentiles, non-Jewish people, could believe in Jesus and be considered righteous. And like actually receive the righteousness of God and be a part of the family of God? No way. So they were hostile to him. I want you to understand something. Follow Jesus. You might face some suffering and some difficulty. I remember a a guy, Dale McConaughey, uh, years ago, he uh, shared with me that in his um, workplace, he had started a Bible study at lunch hour voluntarily. There was their time off. And once, as soon as he started doing that, that's when the boss started turning the screws, just really opposed to that. I mean, uh, I, bring, I call him to mind. He was actually killed by a drunk driver this year. If you've ever listened to the New American Standard Bible on like an app, it's likely his voice. He had an amazing ministry. But he started facing opposition. You know what I'm talking about. If you if you go public with your faith, you no longer are afraid. Uh, you might find some opposition. Think about what's going on in our world. We got certain Asian countries. Look at what's going on in the Middle East. Never let yourself get hardened to the reality that people are losing their heads every single day because they will not recant. They will. Hey, listen. I believe. I know. I've received 
Christ. I, I can't deny him. This is the sort of hostility that's going on. And you need to understand, we are united with these people who believe in the core of their being. Well, Thanksgiving time, um, we have this like tradition in our home. Uh, we put five little kernels of corn by every plate. They're the, the popcorn kernels. They haven't been popped, and they're sitting right in front of there. And what we do after dinner, it uh, doesn't matter who we have with us. Um, it might be family. Oftentimes, it's non-believing family. We have lots of that. Um, you know, maybe someone that, that doesn't know Christ, and they're with us. We do this. And what we do is uh, we go around the table, and you take one kernel, and you say something that you're thankful for. And we put it in the bowl, and you pass it around, and you do this five times. And I tell you, this has made some very powerful memories. It takes it from being superficial to pretty real. Um, people like, you know, I've, I've seen like, I'm just thankful I'm, I'm able to be here because like they had like a major health issue. Really powerful. And we do this because um, tradition has it that in the spring of 1623, and we, this has been documented, that the early pilgrims, after they had their first Thanksgiving, they had an extremely rough season where they literally were starving to death. In fact, it's referred to as the starving time. All they had was the fish that they could catch, and they weren't really good at that, and water. They had to start rationing things. their food. All they could get was five kernels of corn a day to try to sustain them. It's referred to as the starving time. Well, now, uh, Thanksgiving, uh, obviously we have like these bountiful feasts, right? Probably too bountiful, right, if you know what I mean. Uh, it's good to be reminded. We're united with fellow believers, some of which have gone through great hardship. And friends, it encourages our faith. I'll tell you, I love coming and worshiping here at Fellowship. You know why? When I see you singing your praises, holding God in high esteem, praying, holding on, despite your difficulties and your hardships and your cancer and the problems. You know what that does? That just that revives my faith. And friends, that's what it's meant to do. Just like we see here, God's people, when we see them, both past and present, you know what it does? It encourages our faith. And let me just tell you one other truth. How you and I can really thrive, even in the midst of our suffering. We can thrive by faith. It's because... God's judgment is going to be our justice. Look at this. Look at verse 15 again. He's talking about the people who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and they drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. Why are they hostile to all men? What's, what's hostile about them? Because they are hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. They're hostile to all people. Do you know why? Because there is only one message, and there is only one Savior for the world, and that is Jesus. And so if you prevent that message, or you make it hard for that message to go out, friends, that is hostility to people because there is only one way that you can really know God. There's only one path for forgiveness of sins, and that is to believe in Jesus. But if you've got folks that are silenced, you're preventing the message to go out. That is hostility to humanity. And that's what Paul is saying right here. And notice what he refers to. is like they're always filling up the measure of their sins. It's as if they're determined to keep their cup just overflowing with sinfulness and guilt. And when he talks about the measure of their sin, by implication, what God is saying is that, and you see this throughout the scriptures, God allows either a nation or a people group 
or a particular person like a, to accumulate a certain amount of sin before God finally brings judgment. God is really merciful and patient, and I'm really glad that he is, because otherwise I would not be here. And what happens is he's got like a limit. And, and you see this, you know, the, the measure of their sins hasn't been filled up. That's what he's saying right here. He's being merciful. But you need to know something. If you're on the run from God, if you have never truly trusted in Jesus, God does bring judgment. And it's, it's not like this just going off with like temper or something like that. This is a settled indignation. It is God's just wrath against people who refuse him and reject him. And you don't have to face wrath, friends. It doesn't have to be that way. You know why? Because we have the gospel. Jesus has already faced God's just wrath against sin. He bore our sins in his body. You believe and trust in him? Friends, you will know what it means to be united and loved. And you will never face his wrath. Now, I'll tell you something. When you're facing persecution and difficulty, maybe a little bit of antagonism because of your faith in Jesus, you know what that's like, don't you? Some of you have to. If you're like one of the first Christians in your family or maybe the only Christian, you know that some of these holiday times can be a little tricky, right? You kind of feel the heat. You feel like the odd person out. I want to tell you something that, that could take place that can be very negative. If you're facing some sort of suffering because of your faith in Jesus, there's something that you need to be aware of. You need to be aware of resentment. There's a guy by the name of Rob Lowe. He's an actor. I think you're probably familiar with him. Um, he, uh, he actually kind of admits uh, that he came, became sober through a lot of humiliation. In a recent article that was done in GQ magazine, September of 2015, he, he actually espouses a particular uh, truth that I, I want you to hear. Now, Rob Lowe has no profession that he's a Christian. He doesn't have a Christian worldview. But I want you to hear a little bit of excerpt from this article. Lowe spent his 20s just basically enjoying fame and women. To quote him, in those days, the pre-sobriety days, it was like all good, you know, however I can get there. I was perfectly happy. But Lowe's career actually came to a crashing halt. He hit bottom because of his alcoholism, and he had to be put into a rehab uh, center for his addiction. He hasn't had a drink in now over 26 years. This is what I want you to hear. What's the secret? Lowe was asked. Well, for someone in recovery like me, the single greatest hurdle, the number one with a bullet that will make you drink is resentment. You can't have it. People always say, how have you been sober for 26 years? What's the secret? Well, that's it. You see, Lowe knows that resentment can destroy you. When you're going through suffering and your difficulty or someone's coming down hard on you or making fun of you because of your faith or persecuting you deeply. Watch and guard your heart so that resentment doesn't slip in. See, what happens is resentment keeps us from really trusting God with our struggles and the difficult people in our lives. Remember when we went through the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12? Let me refresh your memory in verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God says, I will bring justice to bear. Every injustice is going to be dealt with by me. So he says, do this, though. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap burning coals upon his head. And that was using imagery from Egypt. That was how they showed that they were repentant. They had this pan. They put these burning coals, kind of show that you're burning away the, the wrong thinking, that you're repentant. And then Paul writes in Romans 12, 21, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You don't have to face God's wrath because Christ has faced it in our place. But make no mistake, when you go through difficulty and you're being persecuted, whether it's just kind of vague, kind of you feel some awkwardness, or it's downright, they got a sword to your neck, God's justice will come to bear. And knowing that God is a just God, friends, that gives us the ability to persevere through our sufferings and even emerge triumphant. You see, the truth, it takes, it grows, and it takes root in resistant soil. That's how it happened for the Thessalonians. Paul doesn't want to get thrown off. Hey, you're facing hostility and difficulty. That's oftentimes how the, the tree really sinks deep roots. Remember, like our vision statement? Our vision statement is four words. It is pictured by a tree. It is growing deep, and as your roots grow deep, you start branching out. When you truly believe in Christ, you're like a little sapling. But it is in difficulty. It is in drought. When your roots face rocks, that's where you really start diving in, digging in deep. That's what gives you gravitas, makes you stable, brings about maturity, because you're like, I need strength. And that strength is found in knowing God and his word. And as your roots sink deep and they're bringing in the rich nutrients of God and his word, guess what happens? You start branching out and bearing fruit. And you have what we call maturity. In October 19th, 2010, some of you engineers are like, I would love to have been part of this. They conducted at the Institute for Business and Home Safety uh, a test in South Carolina. And in this test, what they want to do is simulate hurricane situations with homes. So they built two 1,300 square feet homes. One, they used just your traditional construction. They followed all of the normal things and conventional standards for this first home. The second one, they built the home exactly the same way, except they included these reinforcement straps that started all the way from the foundation, went all the way to the roof, that everything was reinforced. They had these reinforcement straps. And so then they put them into their beautiful $40 million facility and turned on the wind. They, the wind was, came in and was circulating at about 110 miles per hour, which is equal to about a Category 3 hurricane. They did three tests. The first two tests were done under 10 minutes, and both homes, you know, some cosmetic issues, but they're doing all right. The third test, though, was to exceed 10 minutes. And so you got these, this Category 3 hurricane going on in the facility. you got these engineers. They're all jumping up and down, super excited watching this. And what happened? Well, the home, the first home that was built by the conventional standards, man, it just started buckling and collapsing. Things were going apart. And it literally, as it started shaking, it collapsed. In fact, there's a picture of it. The second home, the one that was fortified, that had the reinforcement straps starting from the foundation all the way to the roof, all it suffered was some cosmetic issues. And one of the engineers working on the experiment summarized the results by just pointing out to this question. The bottom line you have to ask yourself is, which house would you rather be living in? Which one? This is not a trick question. I would definitely want to be in that one. You guys scare me sometimes. Really, you would want to be in that house? No, you do not want to be in that house. And frankly, you don't want that house to be a reflection of your life. 
Because you are going to face sufferings, and you go through trials, and you're going through difficulties. You know what? It's this simple truth. The blessings of Christ enable us to overcome the sufferings of life. The reinforcements, you know what the reinforcements are? They're the ones that are found in this, this passage. His word, his presence, his people, God's justice. That makes all the difference. It's like Paul wrote in Romans 8.35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Well, tribulation or distress or persecutions or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, that's where our victory is. There was a girl who was um, complaining to her father about all the troubles in her life. It just seemed like, you know, as soon as she'd get done with one problem, there came another problem. You know, like, does that sound familiar? That's kind of like my life. You know, I usually have multiple problems. I refer to the daily drama. And she was like, I am totally tired of this. And and I'm just tired of struggling. She tells her dad this. Now, her dad is a chef. And so he goes and he turns these three burners on. He puts three pots of water on the three burners, and he just stands there and watches the water come to a boil. You know how, like, kids are like, it's like one of those weird, awkward, what in the world is my parent doing now moments, you know? You have those at your house where they're like, Dad, you know? And he's just standing there, not saying anything, just kind of watching the water, it all brings to a boil. And then he, he takes some carrots, some raw carrots, and he puts in one one of the boiling pots of water, and then he takes this egg, and he puts it in the second uh, boiling pot of water, and then he takes up some ground-up coffee beans, and he puts it in the third pot of water, and then he stands there. And she's like, what's going on? And he's just kind of watching this. And eventually, after a while, he turns off the heat on all three and then, you know, asks this really profound question, what do you see? And she's like, duh. <laughs> I see carrots and egg and some coffee grounds and coffee. So he uh, fishes out the carrots and puts in a bowl. Pushes out the egg, puts that in a bowl, and takes some of the, the coffee ground water and puts that in a bowl. And he says, um, what, do you, what do you got here? Why don't you, why don't you t- t- uh, feel this carrot here? Touch it. Well, it's like it's soft and kind of mushy. And he says, okay, now this next one here, what, what do you got here, an egg? Yeah, I, I want you to take the shell off. And, well, you know what you have? You have like a hardened egg, right? It's called a hard-boiled egg, Right? And then, and then they had this the brown water. He says, okay, what do you have here? I want you to taste this. So, mm, this is good. This, that's the coffee. And then she goes, all right, what is all this about? What's going on? And he explained that, well, each of them, they, they faced the same adversity, boiling water. But each reacted differently. You see, the carrots, they went strong and firm and unrelenting. But after being subjected to the boiling water, they came out softened and weak. The egg, well, it was fragile. Its thin outer shell protected its liquid interior, and but after sitting through the boiling water, you know, its inside became hard. And the ground coffee beans, why, they were unique. By being put into the boiling water, they actually changed the water. And so he said, daughter, when adversity knocks... Which will it be are you, for you? What are you? 
And I ask you, adversity, struggles, you all and I all have them. What's happening? Are you turning like mush, right? Is that what's going on? I'll tell you something. Are you becoming hard? That's the one that's most fearful. You go through the suffering, the boiling, and you just get hard inside. You become a hardened individual. Or, through the presence and the grace of Christ, are you transforming the situation that you're in? For pilgrims, past and present, it's the blessings of Christ that enable us to overcome the sufferings of life. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing passage of Scripture. Lord, how we need this truth woven into our lives. Father, if there's someone here today who has never truly trusted Jesus, they, they got trials, they got issues, and they have problems, and they need forgiveness and life from you, would they just simply pray with me and say, God, I, I want to turn from self and sin. I want to stop running. I need you. I need forgiveness. I need your purpose, and I really need your peace. So, Lord, I believe in your son. And I want to follow him as Lord. And Lord, for all of us, God, would you continue to reinforce our lives with the truth of your word and the power of your presence and just the the wondrous grace of just being with your people, knowing that you're a just God. Lord, we ask this as we live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.